down or, or just kind of meld into a sermon series. So I landed on the book of James and specifically in chapter 2. So if you would, follow with me in chapter 2 starting in verse number 14. And it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Adam our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we praise you for who you are, for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you're going to do. We ask that you bless this reading of your word. And may you write it to everlasting, eternal truths on our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, I mentioned that this is kind of a, a precursor to the book of Amos. In the book of Amos, God's people are, um, well, let's just say they're, they're, they're not worshiping the way that they should. They've kind of taken for granted that they are God's chosen people. They're descendants from Abraham, and to them, that was enough. So they weren't worshiping the way that they should. Not only that, they weren't behaving towards others the way that they should. So in the book of Amos, God gives them a warning, and namely, that they are to practice justice and righteousness. And more than anything else, the name of God or names of God, defining God or describing God is used all throughout the book of Amos in different ways. So, here in James, he's kind of going through a similar problem, which leads us to see that history has a way of repeating itself. And if you don't study history, study history, because you're doomed to repeat it just as they were. So here in James chapter 2, we have a few different things, and we have uh, a proclamation, and then we have some examples. Now, the first thing that we jump into in verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is an empty confession. 
This is a confession where someone says, I believe in God. And now in my family, I have some people that say, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I just don't go to church. I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven, but I just don't give to this. I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven, but I can live this way. So they, they justify their actions by saying, I know that I'm secure in Christ. So they're publicly professing who they are, but they're not living the life. It's not reflective of who they are. It's kind of like if I came up here and you heard me talking and I said, I'm from the north. Nothing about how I sound sounds like I'm from the north. I'm from Tennessee. It's self-evident. As soon as I start talking, he's not from here. Well, here, that's kind of what's going on. James is saying, you all are acting in a way that's contrary to what you're saying. So it's not believable that you are who you say you are because of how you're acting. So then in Romans 2, we see that Paul says that we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. Ephesians 2, he kind of doubles down on that and he says that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So that's almost confusing in a way, and I hope to unpack that a little bit this morning. But if we're not saved by our works, but then we're saved for good works, what, what kind of uh, dovetail does that make with one another? So then we go into the second uh, thing that's said here. So we have our first empty confession, and then we have in verse 15 through 17 a false compassion. It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now here, <clears throat> we have somewhat of an example, but it's, it's more showing the heart. We love him because he first loved us. And we are known by the world that we are his by our love one for the other. And if we see a brother or a sister, and the way that this is worded isn't that we see someone naked walking on the street. Or that we see somebody that's starving and you know they're, they're severely malnourished, you can tell. What the thrust here is is they don't have the adequate clothing for what's going on. They're walking around in three feet of snow with shorts, t-shirts, and flip-flops, and that's all they have. So they lack the proper clothing to get through the day. This is a daily thing. They lack daily food. Not that they're on the brink of starvation, but they don't have an ongoing supply. Uh, in Tennessee, in Knoxville, we took part in a, uh, uh, a homeless feeding, I think you would say. It was once a month on Wednesdays, and we would go and we would be under a bridge. A lot of businesses donated. We had tons of food, and we would actually sit down the ones that were homeless. We would feed them, serve them, take their plates, you know, pour the drinks and things. So we would do that, but that was one time. That was a one-time thing. This is saying they lack 
daily resources to feed themselves. So they're severely lacking in these things. They, they don't dress adequately. They, they can't eat properly. And this is daily. And this kind of reminds me of Luke chapter 2 to an extreme, where in Luke chapter 2 you had the Good Samaritan. And most of you know the parable of the Good Samaritan, where a guy gets beat up and robbed and left for dead. And then a, a few different people walk by him, and they see him, and then they choose to walk on the other side of the road. And then a Samaritan, which, by the way, was unheard of back then. The Samaritan would be the one that's, that's the not good person. You know, that, that was the Nazi of those days. But when a Samaritan came and helped them, it was to show the contrast of what their actions were and what their words were. So it was showing them what this false compassion looked like. And he even said, and I like how the, the ESV translates the end of verse 16, says, if you go up to somebody that's lacking in daily food or clothed poorly, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled. In other words, you see somebody that's freezing to death, that doesn't have adequate supply, and you say, go, be filled, and then you walk on. And then it ends verse 16, and it says, what good is that? And seriously, what good is that? If you go up to somebody and you just throw that, it, it's almost like after, um, after a church service and Sunday mornings is kind of one of the, the worst tipping days of the week. If you're a wait, waiter, waitress, you hate to work on Sundays because they give poor tips. And, and you get the tip, and sometimes at the bottom of it, they won't throw a tip down there, but their tip would be a Bible verse. What good is that? You know, what are they going to do with that? So they're sitting here thinking, this isn't meeting any needs whatsoever. And even Jesus said, you have to meet some needs first, and then they'll listen to you. And there's an adage that kind of is a modern-day thing. It says they don't know how, or they don't care they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that's kind of what's going on here. The world doesn't care how much you know. The world doesn't care about a Savior until they see the hands and feet of Jesus and they say, what is this? And then you can open up Scripture because now they want to know how they can get warm. They want to know how they can get fed. And just like the woman at the well who was coming there for for water in the hottest part of the day, and Jesus said, I'm here for water. And she said, you don't have anything to draw from. And he's like, yeah, you're right. But I can give you living water. And then you'll never thirst again. So we have an empty confession. We have a false compassion. And then verse 18 and 19, we have a shallow conviction. But someone would say, you have faith, and I have works. So here... We have James saying, okay, well, let's say that somebody comes up to you and you're a person of faith, but you don't have works. They have works, but they don't have faith. So it's kind of a wash. You know, it's kind of like saying, well, the church down there, they don't do anything for anybody. It's a closed up building. They come, they worship, they go home. There's no change. They're quiet about it once they leave this place. When they're together, they're all lovey-dovey. But there's no love outside of there. 
Well, here, that's kind of what James is saying at the start of verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. There's a lot of good ministries that are doing a lot of good things that aren't Christian. They meet the needs of the poor. They meet the needs of the homeless. They clothe people, but they're secular. They're just doing it because they want to show love to other people, but they don't have a foundation of love that's centered on Christ. However, there's some that have a, a salvation centered on Christ that does no earthly good at all. And that's the comparison that James is making here. And then he replies to them, Show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? Here, he's calling them out. He's saying, you need to do what it is that you say that you are. There's a, uh, at the end of that passage in Luke 6, Jesus talks about the, the wise man that built his house on a firm foundation. Dug down, put some footers in there, and he started building up. Not like the foolish man who built his on a poor foundation. Did no research, did no work, he just threw it up. And then after time, it goes away. And I think it's Matthew that refers to it as the, the wise man and the poor man building their house on the rock and on the sand. Good foundation, solid foundation, and poor foundation. If there's no fruit on a tree, it's no good. You cut it down and you throw it in the fire. That's what it's good for. It's not producing anything anymore. If there's an apple tree that's producing something other than apples, that's messed up. You cut it down because you want apples. And then you throw it away and you plant something that's going to grow some apples. But if there's no good fruit, so you've got an apple tree and year after year, all it does is produce rotten apples. Every year. It's no good for anything. And Jesus said that that tree is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's mirroring what John the Baptist was preaching when he was in the wilderness and said, the axe is already at the root of the tree and whoever does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. So we look at this shallow conviction, this um, faith without works, this conviction without feet. So you have heart, uh, head knowledge, but you don't have the heart knowledge or the heart strength enough the, to make your feet go. So Jesus said that you will know them by their fruit. You will know them by their works. It's going to show up one way or the other. A lie never goes unfound out. And then we go into verse 20. So we had... Empty confession followed by a false compassion followed by a shallow conviction. And then in verse 20 he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And he's going back to verse 18 when he says, But someone would say, You have uh, faith, I have works. So he's calling that person foolish. 
In other words, their works, even though they might be doing good in an earthly sense, are useless in the kingdom of God and they're useless in all eternity. So he's calling that person foolish and he's not meaning that as in stupid or dumb. He's meaning that as in useless. Doing something without any product on the back end. So it's just mindless work. And he says, you foolish person, here's what it is. Faith apart from works is useless. So he calls them a useless person because what they're producing without faith is worthless and useless. So then we go into um, the weird part. And the weird part of this passage is the one part of all of Scripture that John, uh, John, I want to say John, it's not his name, Martin Luther hated more than any of them because it's difficult when you're founding your theology on faith alone and justification by faith alone, and then you get to a book of the Bible that contradicts that in a way. So, I'm going to unpack it, not that I know more about it than he does, but he was zoned in on a particular thing and a particular gripe. Now, we're all fallible, and on this one, he was too honed in on something to see the bigger picture of it, and the other reformers kind of helped show where the false was, but... He had a hang-up with this justification. And the reason is, it's an odd word. In the Greek, it's an odd word. In English, and this is one that you all probably would know, when we translate Scripture from Greek, Hebrew, uh, even Latin, uh, some words translate better than others. So when we translate and we read through the Bible, we see one word, and that word is love. And love is mentioned over and over and over. But in Greek, there's three words for love. There's agape love, there's phileo love, and there's eros love. So there's three words that they would use to show what the different meanings of love they were talking about. But it's rare that a Greek word would do the same thing, have multiple meanings for one word. But justification actually does that. When we translate this into Latin or Greek, we see that it says the same word for justified, but it can mean two similar things but different things. And what those are is the one that we think of most uh, right off the cuff is justification in, in meaning imputation. So we're justified in, in Christ or through Christ. So we're saved by grace, through faith, we're, we're justified in that. That's an imputed righteousness. That's, a, that's an acquittal. That's when the judge comes out and he reads the verdict and says, not guilty. That's the justification that we think of. So we're declared righteous. The other meaning for justification is a manifestation. You see, it's one thing for the judge to come out and say and declare someone innocent. It's another thing for someone to go to trial and say, Judge, 
I didn't do it. And then just walk out. That's it. Because they have to prove that they didn't do it. Just them proclaiming that they didn't do it is not enough. They have to show proof that this is who they are. That they did or did not do what they said that they were going to do. So there's an imputation and there's a manifestation or a vindication. It's proving that you're right or proving that you're righteous. And then we have some examples. One example is Abraham. And this is a good one to go to because James knows all these people know who Abraham is. So he's going to jump into Abraham. And that's in uh, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Now again, it's not saying here that he's not saved by faith in Christ alone. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that your faith is not proven in what you say that you are. It's proven in what you do, and does that match who you say that you are? I'm a Tennessean, and I can prove it in a bunch of different ways. Some of you all are from a family line that you're proud of, and you can prove who you are in multiple different ways. There's ways that you do this, and for him, he wanted to go to Abraham. Abraham because he was the father of Israel. He's the one that everything's coming out of. Everybody who's anybody in the Bible, they will say that the, the child of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it all starts with Abraham. So let's go back to that guy. Let's see how he was saved. And then he unpacks it. And he says that he offered up Isaac as proof of his belief. You see, he had faith in who God was years before. Years before. He left where he was. They packed up everything and took off to a place that they didn't know they were going to because he trusted what God told him. So he had faith in who God was. He packed up and they left. So he had faith all that time. And there were different things that he did that he could have done better. He could have done more righteously. Um, some things he could have gotten a lot worse. But when we look at what he did, at the tail end of it, he offers up Isaac. The son that he was promised. God promised him numerous sons and daughters that would outnumber the, sun, uh, the, the stars in the sky. And now he finally has a son. He had another one, but that wasn't the one that God promised. He did that one illegitimately, so not based on his faith. But he did have this son, and this one was the promised one. And then God told him to take him up and offer him as a sacrifice. So, what do you do? Do you have faith in God who delivered this baby to you and your wife 
that's well over a hundred now to give you another child? Or do you start bargaining with it and show that lack of faith? And it says, well, we all know he offered up his son. And God made another way, a, a ram that was stuck in the thickets so that he wouldn't have to sacrifice his son. But by his actions and what he was willing to do, he displayed and proved that he had faith in God. So then it says that his faith was complete. It's not that he didn't trust God before, but now he trusted Him and he showed it. So now it's complete in who he is. Man that is justified before God will prove it before men. And if he's not justified before God, it will come to life. And we see that through men of God that say that they're men of God for years that end up falling away because they said that they were of God, but they were not of God. And they fell away. So this faith was perfected in that he proved his righteousness. He proved his faith. He wasn't saved by this, but that was a seal on it showing that that's what it was. Uh, in, in times past, I was a math major. And in math, I was in this class called uh, analytical, let me think, nope, it was just analysis. And in analysis, we're doing calculus. But it's kind of easy calculus because we've already had calculus one, two, three, differential, all that other, you know, boring stuff that y'all don't care about. But in analysis, we were writing up problems, we're solving the problems, and then Dr. Don Hong would ask every time. He would sit there and he would just tap away on the chalkboard, writing out this whole big thing, and he states a fact. And then at the very end of it, he draws a box and he says, can you prove? Every time he did that, can you prove? We knew it was true. We saw every step of the way, but we had to go back and use definitions, theorems to prove that what we got as an answer was the right answer. So even in math, we have to prove that an answer is right. And then he kind of switches gears here in James. He goes to another place. So in verse 25, he says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Israel, when they were going back to the promised land, there was this big city that stood in the way, Jericho. And it wasn't so much that Jericho was there and they could have just went around it. Jericho was inhabiting part of what land God had promised to Israel. So it's not that uh, they could have just went around. That would have been the easiest thing to do probably. But they needed to go through there and reclaim the place that God had given them. And Rahab was uh, basically, her, her dwelling was in the, in the gate of the city. It would have been the inn. If somebody was passing through, they would have stopped there and stayed there. But it wasn't just a family kind of place. 
Um, some other things happened in that place. So, Rahab had some guys come in. No big deal. I mean, people come and go all the time. So, what's another two guys? Three guys, whatever it was. So they came in, and they talked to her, and she said, I know who you are. I've heard the things that's been done. And I know that the people of the city are going to come after you. I'm going to let you out another way. Because I know that your God will save me and my father's house. So she let them go. She had faith and she proved it by her works. It wasn't that, okay, I think your God will spare me, so good luck. You know, I'm going to turn away and, and wish you well. She put action to it and said, here, hide over here for a little bit. When the times come and the coast is clear, I'm going to send you out another way. And this is what I want. I want to be safe and my father's house to be safe. And I know that your God can do it. So she put action in that. Now, why that's interesting, you have Abraham, who is a righteous man. And all of Israel and all the Jews would recognize Abraham as the man. If you're going to stake anything on Abraham, that's the way you want to go. But then you also have a Gentile. So we have the Israelitist of all of Israel, and we have the Gentilist of all Gentiles. We have Abraham and we have Rahab. We have an upright man and we have a prostitute. Two completely different worlds. Two completely different upbringings. Both of them had faith in God. Both of them proved their faith in God. And God saved and redeemed both. So it wasn't that their faith was not true. It wasn't that their profession was inaccurate. Their profession was accurate, and it was proven through their works. They were who they said they were, and they believed God to be who He said that He is. You see, our, our Paul, Paul was dealing with a different group, and, and that's why this was such a... Uh, a weird topic for Martin Luther and even the reformers and still to this day it's kind of awkward because you have Romans that kind of heralds justification you are saved by faith this faith is going to save you but the problem that Paul was dealing with is the people believed that they were saved by who they were we're from Abraham we're descendants of Israel we're good we don't need all that other stuff. We're good where we are because of who we are and whose lineage we're from. So I can trace my lineage back to David, back to Abraham, back to Moses, and I'm good because of that. So Paul was dealing with one end where they were um, believing that they were justified only by who they were. But then we have James that's saying that they're not justified by only their profession. So we have one that's 
perfected by practice and one by, um, by their profession. You have James saying there needs to be work, there needs to be action showing who you are. And Paul was saying you need to have faith behind all these rituals that's been passed down through your family and through the temples. There has to be both. And both of them are merging on the same thing. So they're not contradicting each other. They're dealing with two sides of the aisle and they're trying to bring them back together to the consensus and the truth of who they are. That faith is perfected by our profession practiced. If a profession of faith is not practiced, it's not going to be a perfected justification. And if our practice is void of a profession of faith, it's not going to save. But the saving faith that Scripture preaches and teaches is perfected through our profession practiced. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were created in Christ Jesus, made new, come to new, made up something completely different than what we were. That's our profession. And then our works, our practice comes out of that. Because of who we now are in Christ, <clears throat> we do that life now in our bodies, and that practice is perfecting that righteousness. That's when God looks at Abraham and says his faith was perfected. Not because his faith got better and better and better, but because his faith was finally put to test and it was proven to be true. So then it was perfected. Not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's going to be a time when people in my family and probably some of yours, and maybe even some of you that are here, say, I believe who Jesus said He is. But are you living that truth? Are you living a life that says, what I'm saying with my mouth is actually practiced in my life? If you watch my life, you'll see that there's something different about me. And then if you talk to me about it, I can point you to the time in my life that everything changed. Because my faith is one thing. When I was, I think it was eight years old in Bible drill practice during a, during a, a thunderstorm, I can take you to the steps that I was sitting on when I professed Christ as Lord. But that profession is useless if I don't live out my life in that profession. If I live my life just like the world does, then it did not change me. I was not made a new creature. I wasn't a new creation. I hadn't been born again. I just said some words and I lived the life that I had already planned to live. But when we make that profession and then we put meat behind those words, it means something. Kind of reminds you of, of little kids when when they would say, oh, I can do so-and-so. I can, I can make a basket from there. Oh, yeah? Prove it. Well, you know, my, my basketball shoes, I left those at home, so I can't really get the right angle on this. You know, there's those people, and you can tell them a mile away. So here, he's saying, 
hey, you're saying that you are of Christ. Can you prove it with the life that you're living? Now, you can't live a righteous life void of that faith, but you can't have a perfected faith if you live your life void of the practice. In 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul actually goes back on this a little bit. And he helps clarify what he was saying earlier. And in 2 Corinthians 13.5, he tells them to examine themselves, test themselves, to see if they are of God. Look over your life. See, how do you test yourself? You test things by looking at the product. You look at the outcome, you look at the input, and you see if they match. So when he says, test yourselves, examine yourselves, he's saying, reflect on how you've been living your life. You say that you're of Christ, are you living that way? You say that you trust God, do you really? Or are you afraid? Do you tithe the way that you should? Or, or when you look at your budget, you're thinking, this is too tight. I, I trust God, but God gave me a mind to think and I need to do this. Or, you know, well, that person by the road, they're probably going to buy booze or whatever with, with whatever I get them. Well, if you're going to stop and give somebody something, I would say don't just throw it at them and take off. Get out and talk to them. Try to see where they are so that you can live a Christ-like life. Jesus didn't sit on the well and tell the woman, hey, get some water. I got some living water. Here's you a cup and just walk off. He talked to her, got to know her, show her that he cared about her. She felt loved, and then her guard went down, and she was open and said, Who are you? What's this water you're talking about? Tell me some more about this. And she was so excited, if you remember, she left the pail by the well. She didn't even care about what she went there for because she was completely new, and she wanted to tell everybody about what she had seen and who she saw. So today, this morning, there's a couple different ways that you can go on this. And I don't know your lives, but I'm going to tell you to examine yourself. Look back over your life. At some point, did you make a profession of faith? Did you tell God, I believe that you are who you say that you are, and if I trust in you, then I can be with you in heaven forever and not perish in hell? I want to do that. And that was it. You made the profession. You got baptized. Your parents may have taken you out to the steakhouse. That's what mine did. And you celebrated and you got the Bible. You got the certificate. Everybody came around and shook your hand. And that was it. Your life after that, you've attended church. You've never really jumped in. You've never really loved the people that you're with. You just go because you think that's what you're supposed to do because you made a profession at one time. And now you need to make sure that you check off the roll sheet so that when you get to heaven, you can say, look back. See, I came. I was there almost every Sunday. I was there. Maybe that's you. And your practice needs to match your profession. Maybe you're doing all the right things. And there's denominations that do this where you go to a certain service and you make sure that you're at those services and as long as you go there 
and you, you partake in the Lord's Supper and you bow down to whatever they have, then you're good to go. But you don't really believe all the things that's said in Scripture. You don't really believe what's being read when the pastor gets up and reads the things that he does. There's no belief there. There's no profession. There's just practice. And maybe that's you. Maybe you just come. You've never made a profession. You've never been baptized and made a public profession of faith showing outwardly what's happened inwardly, that you are a new creation because you've never been that new creation in the first place. And today's the day that you can't make it a profession. Come and let everybody know what's happened so that through the discipleship process they can walk with you together and that you can grow in who God has you to be and that you can produce the good fruit based on your profession. Maybe you're here this morning, you just happen to stumble in, or, or you're a friend of somebody that come, or you just came with your mom or dad, or, or maybe you came with your kids, and this is just what you do. You were raised in church, so maybe your kids need to be raised in church too. But you've never made a profession, and you certainly don't live a Christian life. Maybe that's you. Or maybe it's the kids that are, that are here, they come because they got drugged, you know, it's, they didn't want to come. They've had a, a big couple weeks here. We've had Christmas. We've had New Year's. And, you know, they're tired and they just don't want to be here. They want to be at home, asleep, watching cartoons, playing with all the new stuff they have. Maybe that's one of the kids here today. I don't know. But God is stirring in your heart saying, this is where I want you to be. I am who I say I am, and now you believe that, and this morning you're wanting to profess that. And you're wanting to change your life and walk in a new way of living. Maybe that's you. Or maybe everything's great. You've made a profession. You've practiced the practice, so you've walked the walk and you've talked the talk, and everything's going well. But there's always something else, isn't there? See, Elijah was a good prophet, mighty man of God, named one of our kids after him because of the, the faith that he had. But on towards the end of his life, he started falling away a little bit, started doubting just a little bit. He wasn't as exciting or as excited at the tail end before God took him home as he was when he stood before all the worshipers of Baal and was taunting their God. It wasn't the same guy. He was scared, he was afraid, and he was on the run. Didn't know what was going to happen. But God sent him another to follow after him, Elisha. And he told him, I want you to train him up. So maybe you've lived a long life of faith, practiced and professed. And now you need to look around and say, there's younger men, there's younger women they need help. They need someone that can bring, they, that can walk beside of them and say, you know what, it's okay. You're not going to be perfect. You're going to be made perfect one day when we stand in front of Him. But today's not that day. But we can grow through this together. So maybe it's a call to discipleship on your end. Whatever the case may be, we're going to sing here in a second. I'll be sitting here on the front row 
So if you want to pray about anything, you can come and talk to me. Uh, if you want to grab anybody else, just grab them. Go ahead. If they don't pray with you, then I'll come up and preach some more on James chapter 2. But whatever the decision is that you are making, whatever is stirring in your heart, that's not just your thoughts running. That's the Holy Spirit working and moving in your life. Do not resist Him. Allow Him to work because His job is to make you like Christ. Let's pray.